Welcome to the Speed and Scale podcast. I'm your host, Baybars Ursik. I'm very excited to have this conversation with two amazing guests. But before we go dive into the, the conversation, I just want to thank you all for listening to the show, sharing your comments and feedback. It's been really great to see that it resonates with a lot of people within the field and useful actually to uh, stay up to date with some of the latest conversations that we are having in the, in the information ecosystem. So for the fourth episode of the show, I will be having Sam Gregory, the executive director of Witness, and Sabhanas Rashid Dia, the founder and the executive director of the Tech Global Institute. We'll be discussing anything and everything about generative AI, the roles in which it plays in the fight against misinformation. We all agree that it's a big agent of change, but we're going to discuss which direction uh, we see uh, the generative AI is taking us towards um, with all these developments and new tools that are being published almost every single day. So the first of uh, the first part of the conversation uh, will have Sam Gregory. Uh, Sam is an esteemed leader um, in the human rights space and the intersection of uh, technology and particularly video in st- uh, telling human rights abuses and violations. And then uh, for the second part of the episode, I will have uh, Dia. Dia is a former tech executive and uh, she's worked at uh, platforms like Meta, Google, but she will also walk us through how she ended up leading a very important uh, nonprofit to empower the global majority, as she call, likes to call, which I'm a big fan of instead of uh, the global south, and uh, the, the challenge that she sees in the field and promising a high note conclusion to our conversation by letting us know what she thinks the way out uh, in this series of challenges that we have in the year of elections. Without further ado, let's get into the conversation. Hi, Sam. Welcome to the show. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Wonderful to have you. You come from a human rights background and have a tremendous experience in exploring the intersection of tech and democracy. I'm a big fan of your work and a follower of the Witness uh, organization, and I had the chance to host the Global Fact Conference in the past. But for our listeners, can you offer a quick introduction to your work at Witness? Sure. So Witness is a global human rights organization that was created 30 years ago to make sure that the potential of video and technology for human rights could be realized. Uh, What that means is we work very closely with human rights activists and civic journalists around the world who are trying to show the truth of human rights violations and critical social issues. We train them, we provide critical resources, and we also really advocate around the infrastructure that shapes how you document the truth. Um, And that's meant that over the last five years, we've really focused on how we prepare better for deepfakes and synthetic media and generative AI. How do we make sure that as we build both tools that make it easier to deceive people, as well as tools that might enhance trust in what we see and hear, uh, that the voices and needs of journalists and human rights defenders globally are right at the center of that. This is amazing. Obviously, technology, particularly uh, AI, has a lot of value for human rights defenders, activists, uh, and I come from also a s- not so much similar, but a overlapping area. I study conflict resolution and I had the chance to study a lot of case studies where technology could be a resource for uh, activists and human rights defenders uh, to make their case. 
And I guess that's what makes it to call for um, the industry at large to prepare, not to panic since 2018. And you also raised for two two-step approach. Uh, can you walk us through what those two steps are and how do you think technology can be at the use of human rights advocates and defenders, particularly for people in the global south and uh, in different parts of the world? So, so you know, I think, and, and I come in an interesting place when I talk about generative AI and deepfakes, because, you know, I've seen the potential of more people having access to mobile phones, to video, to technology, to document human rights issues. We just need to recognize the, the visibility of almost any human rights issue now compared to, say, 30 years ago. We don't need to rely on a few journalists. We have citizen journalists. We have uh, open source intelligence networks that are trying to document it. We have um, individual witnesses just from societies. Um, and you know, a lot of my work at Witness really focuses on how do you make it uh, more s- stronger as evidence, more reliable? How do you support people to be able to share stories that really matter of their circumstances? Um, and so on the one hand, there's that work of witness, which is tremendously important of how do we tap into this sort of participatory moment for showing what's wrong in the world and proposing solutions. And at the same time, we have this trend of undermining our confidence and trust in those images and videos that are shared um, by those frontline defenders of human rights or of journalism. And you know, when we started working on deepfakes, it was six years ago. We we started within this frame. You called it "prepare, don't panic." Um, and what we really wanted to do there was pop the hype bubble uh, around deepfakes, because you know, in 2018, and you'll remember this as well. You know, there's so much hype around this that was totally unrelated to the reality of actually how people were deceived online. Right? It wasn't deepfakes. It was shallow fakes and cheap fakes. It was you know the platform algorithms that were playing a role here. It wasn't just that you could do a face swap of President Obama. Right. Um, and so we really wanted to push back on that hype. We also wanted to say that there's real expertise that already sits around us and solutions that people are proposing. So we would talk to human rights defenders and journalists who'd say, look, we're already trying to do verification using open source techniques. We're already used to people in power challenging what we say as lies, right? This is not new. Let's draw on that expertise and let's also listen for the solutions to what journalists and human rights defenders and technologists and vulnerable communities around the world are saying rather than what gets prioritized in DC or Brussels. And so that's really been the drive of the work there is how do we prepare, don't panic, drawing on expertise, fighting the hype bubble, which is also used against us because it you know, is used to undermine our confidence, uh, and drawing on also the experience of people who've already been defending trust, already been trying to prove credible information. And you see these dynamics playing out you know, constantly, I'm just thinking this week we have the release of that open AI tool, Sora. And, you know, I, I have a very ambivalent reaction to that, right? On the one hand, I work for an organization that cares about the expressive potential of video and more people be able to tell their stories. At the same time, I'm deeply concerned about how a tool like that was designed and trained. And then I'm looking at how it could be misused in a way that will simultaneously undermine the voices of those people who should matter most in our societies. I guess it's just like, you know, interesting for me to uh, dive a bit deeper into this uh, dilemma or the trade-off that you're calling, right? I mean, you call for the industry to be mindful of this trade-off between security and access. I I think uh, many of us, including those frontline practitioners, such as the human rights defenders, fact-checkers, even like researchers, 
whoever is trying to understand the implication of uh, inter, uh, this, uh, technology needs to have access to the tools to understand how to tackle the misuse uh, of generative AI and other tools. What is your like, you know, biggest concern around that trade-off and how do you think we should overcome this by working with the industry at large and what do you think we should have in mind uh, when advocating for access uh, while keeping in mind of the risk associated with security? Yeah, so I think what you're putting your finger on are the challenges around two sets of technologies that I think are highly relevant to how we deal with synthetic media, uh, deceptive AI. Um, and and I just I think of these as technologies of authenticity and provenance and of detection, right? And and both of these are so prominent right now in the discussions. Authenticity and provenance is really interesting because it's one where, in fact, you know, my community of human rights activists was working on this a decade ago, 15 years ago, because we had to prove the integrity of our media because it was challenged, right? In contexts like Syria and elsewhere where individuals would film a piece of real footage and people would challenge the integrity of it. So for the last 15 years, the human rights sector has been trying to think often alongside journalists about how do we prove the integrity of the real content? Um, What's changed in that space, of course, now we're trying to think, how do we throw into the recipe and mix of that? How do we understand what is AI? So that's one side of the equation, and there's, mm-hmm. there's so much attention on that. And I'll talk about that in a second. The other is, of course, detection, where it's like, if we don't have the signals that show you know, the recipe of how something was made, right? it's a mix of the real and the AI, how are we going to detect that after the fact? And there's some similar dynamics around privacy, security, and access with both of them. On the authenticity and provenance, we've been part of the discussions around how you develop a technical standard. There's one called the C2PA that's been pretty prominent. It's developed by something called the Coalition for Content Provenance and Authenticity. Uh, Many of the large companies in that space, um, Google just joined it a week ago. Um, And that's a standard for basically tracking and understanding the recipe of how a piece of media is made, how it was made, how it was edited, how it was distributed. And there, I think the security and access questions are really big picture because they're about infrastructure. It's like, are we building a system that is accessible on lower end devices? Are we building one that doesn't require you to use the cloud? Are we building one that doesn't require you to attach personal identity to be trusted as a uh, creator of media, right? Those are big picture questions you have to build into the infrastructure because then they'll then ripple down to the individual, whether it's you or I, or a more vulnerable person who's a dissident or a journalist. Um, and that is moving quite fast. I think it's really important to pay attention to that because it's infrastructure and infrastructure is determinative of what individuals can do. The second part of that is detection. Um, a lot of people dismiss the idea that we can detect AI. It's a funny dynamic that plays out is governments want platforms to detect everything that's made with AI. Yeah. Researchers say it's impossible because detection doesn't work. Um, pundits say, don't invest in detection, invest in authenticity because it's a much more robust solution. And people on the front lines like me say, we're going to need some detection, even if it's flawed, right? Because as a journalist or a human rights defender, you've got to work out how to be able to discern what is AI made and then explain it to your public. The problem with detection is it's um, a classic cybersecurity problem as well. It's adversarial, right? So if you design a detection tool to spot, say, a way of making a fake image, a way of making a fake audio, If it is completely publicly available, then of course, people will test out their malicious attacks on it. They'll work out how to do counter forensics and it will rapidly become relatively less effective. Uh, So one of the dilemmas we've been seeing around detection is how do we make it available to people who particularly need it without making it available 
in a way that totally undermines it? And how do we also explain that it's only ever likely to be 85 to 90% effective? And the way we approach that from a witness point of view is we describe it as a detection equity problem. Equity being detection is not in the hands who need it, the people who need it most. Let's say journalists, human rights defender, election officials globally. And it's also not in their hands with the right resourcing and skills. So what we need in that space is not an infrastructure that everyone has access to. We need to have a better way of having detection available to critical players in society alongside resources and skills and potentially ways also that they can escalate uh, an example of really contentious media to a set of expertise that will be able to provide more deep media forensics expertise. It sounds like an arms race in a multipolar world, I guess. And uh, one ways in which that is sort of like, you know, being attempted to be addressed by various governments, policymakers around the world is regulation, right? And it's a topic that emerges as a key uh, conversation around information integrity. And ironically, Americans are not in the driver's seat of tech regulation, uh, of the tech that they have actually built. There are certain state-level activities, initiatives to regulate the AI, namely in the state of California. And there's also a presidential executive order of uh, safe, secure, and trustworthy artificial intelligence. But there's not an industry approach similar to what we see in Europe with the DSA and the AI Act. And you also touched on the uh, C2PA. It it sounds like it's more like a self-regulation rather than like a um, regulatory attitude what we see with the American tech companies. And for our listeners, um, you also testified at the U.S. House of Representatives earlier last uh, couple of months of the year in November, if I'm not mistaken. What is your take on from a policy perspective uh, on the measures that are needed to address the challenges posed by AI misinformation? What kind of like a regulatory framework uh, could effectively uh, balance innovation um, and free speech with accountability and protecting the rights of the people? So I think there's two ways to go about regulation. And one is a way that you're seeing in pretty much all the regulatory approaches, which is transparency um, and responsibility through the AI pipeline, right? If we don't know when AI is being used in what we consume, um, then it's very hard to make either individual or regulatory decisions around what to do. So AI transparency goes way beyond deepfakes and and synthetic media, right? It's a much broader issue around how do we understand where that is. And that's in the EU AI Act. I think it's in other legislation if we look globally. There's a broad trend there. And I think that's essential. That's a big picture part of it um, on which everything else is built. And at Witness, we often talk about you know, the AI pipeline to try and, in some sense, decenter the focus people often have on just the platforms, right? It's not the platforms, it's the bigger conglomerates that are behind the platforms, it's the foundation models and the deployers more broadly that are important to include in this transparency. Otherwise, you know, it's going to be impossible to have, you know, robust provenance signals, going to be impossible to do detection. This has to be a whole pipeline approach that is about responsibility across the AI pipeline and transparency around that. I think there's an additional big picture element in the US context, which is we don't have federal data privacy laws. So we don't have any idea how our data is being used. So in the US context, transparency and privacy are huge elements that I think um, need to be built on. What you're seeing at the state level in the US is uh, are more like issue specific laws as well around synthetic media deepfakes which tend to fall into a couple of categories. There's ones around non-consensual sexual images. Obviously, this is a huge problem. It is the original sin of deepfakes and, in fact, of much of the malicious use of, uh, of, of, of deceptive audiovisual AI. And so you're seeing that at a state level. We're seeing a 
somewhat belated response to that, right? So that's a specific area where it's like, we need to target this and identify how we mitigate the harms from being able to nudify a person without their consent or easily create a sexual image of someone that can be shared as if it was real. And then we're seeing a set of laws that are around elections and how do you sort of circumscribe some kind of rules around election campaigning. And that seems to be the broad trend on regulation, right? And I think obviously there's some foundational ones uh, that are particularly relevant when we think about misinformation and disinformation because they're about transparency, they're about the responsibility through the pipeline. And then there's a second set that are much more specific to particular harms or particular scenarios, which will probably move faster because they're much more narrowly scoped um, to do something. Right. And as much as we've been trying to take this from an inter- information integrity perspective, you rightfully said that the original sin when it comes to generative AI revolves around privacy and various uh, manipulated images. That also made the news lately around the world about Taylor Swift and many others, which brings me to this uh, question on how uh, we can empower the public with tools and resources to identify generative AI uh, generated images, especially when it comes to CSAM or uh, privacy violations. And we've been talking about media literacy for, for a very long time right now. What will be media literacy 2.0 uh, when it comes to its capabilities to educate the public on discerning between real and fake content? So I think, um, and we have been talking about media literacy for a long time, you probably more than anyone as well in our space as well. Um, I, I don't want to dismiss media literacy, I, but I also want to avoid us placing all the onus on individuals to detect deceptive AI. I think there's way too much media attention that focuses on spotting the, you know, the equivalent of the six-fingered hand in the image or the eyes that don't blink in a deep fake or the audio glitch. And although that is a useful first step as it stands, because there are those algorithmic uh, glitches that are derived from the way you know media, you know these tools have been trained and where they currently are, those glitches go away. You know we can take the example of you know the improvement in the quality of hands or the improvement of the ability of deepfakes to blink. Uh, so I think we're really doing a disservice to the public when we tell them to sort of look for the glitch. Um, Instead, you know, I, I think the f- we need to be looking at, a, in some sense, a modified media literacy. So, you know, I use often when I'm teaching the SIFT framework. It's one media literacy framework. Uh, Mike Caulfield's one: stop, uh, investigate the source, find alternative coverage, trace the original. Um, and what we need to do is use that type of framework, but also think what are the signals that could help an individual do that in an AI age? And that's where it comes to the questions of provenance and authenticity and the ability to have detection available to some sects of society is that then you're able to provide some signals to someone. For example, you can say the signals show that this is made with AI or the signals show that this was edited with AI. That doesn't say it's malicious. It just gives you something there, a piece of information. Now, of course, this is not a silver bullet, right? Signals of authenticity and provenance can be removed. They can You can use counter forensics. They're a, they're a type of signal to help people in media literacy, and they're a way of also sort of reducing the potential harm from you know, an environment where we have no way to know uh, how something was made. So I think they're really important. When it comes to non-consensual sexual images, I, I think we have to be really careful because generally it's not about whether they're believable or trustworthy or authentic. Like We know that's not an image of Taylor Swift. We know that's not an image of that public figure. They're designed to humiliate. They're not designed to be 
believable in that sense. And so, again, I think this is why we need a mix of solutions here, right? For for the vast majority of synthetic media, 99.9% of it is non-malicious. It's just people having fun, communicating. Um, and so we shouldn't be trying to criminalize that. We should be providing signals to help people understand what they're consuming within a media literacy framework. When it comes to non-consensual sexual images, there's an argument there for criminalization and liability if you're using that in a malicious way and a non-consensual way, right? So it's a different toolkit we have to have for those types of content because it's not about whether it's believable and it's not about whether it's authentic. It's about the harm it directly causes um, and the way it's weaponized. Right. And uh, before I just, you know, ask my last question to wrap this uh, conversation, lately we've been seeing platforms pushing back on their efforts to uh, fight against misinformation in the light of all these recent developments. Uh, Elon Musk's uh, new X uh, shows a different model in terms of like how to keep the integrity of the platforms. And many others also uh, seem to be promoting media literacy or pre-banking uh, rather than working with fact checkers or others uh, and uh, be a bit less proactive in moderating content. But when it comes to generative AI and non-consensual sexual images and other uh, CSAM, I think the platforms do not have the same space that they think they did have uh, when it comes to uh, tackling misinformation. Uh, so media literacy may not be the solution uh, that they taught it could be for uh, misinformation. And we have elections this year, I mean, all around the world. We already had a few uh, earlier in this year, and many of them had a, such a huge emphasis on generative AI, and more than a billion people will go to the voting uh, stations uh, in a few months in India, and hundreds of millions in the US, many all around the world. Uh, I'm just curious, what keeps you awake at night when you see all these developments in this space and platforms uh, tackling this issue, not just the traditional social media platforms, but like, but the likes of OpenAI, uh, Anthropic, and other um, other platforms that they have their own large language models. Yeah. So in the last week, we had twenty tech companies release something called the Tech Accord, which was all around how they were going to confront deceptive AI in these elections, and it sets a floor right for some actions they're going to take right and it includes a number of companies who've not previously committed to doing some actions around detection and provenance like x in fact as well as companies like stability and 11 labs which makes audio as well as all the big ones like google and meta and tiktok um so you're seeing steps forward on deceptive ai you know to a certain baseline right a commitment to having these authenticity and provenance signals a commitment to trying to support civil society to be part of this the problem in the election year is most of this won't be in place at a robust level to be effective, right? We won't have robust enough authenticity and provenance infrastructure in 2024 to be able to respond to um, potential crises of trust around synthetic media. Um, and then the second problem is this is against the backdrop of other spaces where they've cut back on resourcing, right? They've cut back on content moderation globally. They've cut back on the resourcing available to fact checkers. They haven't adequately yet resourced civil society to be resilient in the face of AI. And their business model is still largely built on promoting content that is uh, engaging, right? And so we have steps forward on the AI side, on the deceptive AI side, that are in the right direction, but probably won't be in time for most of the election year. And we have a backdrop of uh, broader actions by these companies that aren't addressing, you know, what you need to do to to support, um, 
you know, a range of societies globally to use social media, use AI tools, but to, but to have the resources to counter the malicious uses from mis and disinformation to hate speech to bias. This has been super helpful and I really appreciate this, Sam. Uh, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks. It's good to talk. My conversation with Sam really pushed me to think this much more broader than I used to do. We talk about American companies, uh, tech companies particularly, uh, building a groundbreaking technology uh, and experiencing the uh, Europeans are uh, taking the front seat in regulating that technology. Um, but what would we often uh, not see is an emphasis on its implications in the global majority. What does it mean for those policies, uh, for the people in uh, in different parts of the world? Does one-size-fit-all approach work? Um, how to deal with those trade-offs? I will just have Dia to talk about those in a much more broader uh, scope to uh, get a bit of much more granular level of understanding the, the implications of this technology and ways in which we try to navigate it in the global majority. Yeah, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show, Bars. Wonderful. So you have an amazing background in tech, um, non-governments. You're an entrepreneur, or as someone would call an infopreneur. You have been working on the information space for uh, many years and have this tremendous experience at the intersection of democracy, technology, intergovernmental organizations. So I'm really looking forward to getting your sense on like, you know, where we are right now and we are, where we are heading to generative AI and all these elections happening this year. Before we dive deep into those uh, questions, can you talk a little bit about yourself and uh, if possible, what was your frustration to leave tech and start your own nonprofit and talk about it a little bit if possible? Okay. Wow. We were diving into the difficult thing. I think the hardest thing in the world is to talk about yourself, uh, but I'll, I'll see if I can do a bit of that. Um, so I am... Um, I started my career as a journalist, and I was a journalist for many years uh, in Bangladesh before I transitioned on to be, uh, working a bit more for governments uh, and also in, in the entrepreneurial world, you know, working with larger entities in looking at projects, international development, uh, information, sort of the intersection in digital policies. And at the time, I think when I started my career, social media wasn't as much in the vocabulary, but large-scale government digitization was. And so I was involved a lot with large-scale government digitization programs, looking at digital divides, smart for adoption, and then eventually transitioned on to um, working more on some of the more emerging tech issues. Um, I, I moved, I'm originally from Bangladesh, and I moved to the U.S. Um, several years ago. And there, um, you know, after um, I spent some time with the U.S. Department of Defense, working on encryption technologies with the ACLU, also looking at privacy in classrooms. And then with um, USIT in South Africa, uh, with the World Bank, and globally looking at, again, digital policies and sort of that broader spectrum, and really sort of where information, democracy, economic powers, um, social mobility, all that intersection, particularly in context of the global majority. Um, my latest, last gig was, my most recent gig was with Meta, where I was heading public policy uh, out of the Singapore office. Um, and... Uh, my focus was uh, a policy focus on a wide range of issues, but from government relations, uh, which then goes into issues around competition, um, around content governance, privacy, information integrity, uh, responsible AI, and a number of other other issues. So I think for me, um, having kind of had having that journey from 
really grassroots, hands-on reporting on uh, what does technology's impact on people look like, and then kind of zooming out slowly throughout my career, you know, first within government, then within sort of intergovernment organizations, then within the nonprofit philanthropic space, and then finally with with Meta. I think um, for me, the the guiding light has always been how do I how do we make sure technology actually works for people as opposed to people working for technology, right? And stuff like, and how do you kind of look at the power dynamic between the two? And I think uh, while I was while I was at Meta, and then I spent some time at Google before as well. I think um, this idea that you know there are inherent inherent power disparities and and structures that inform how people are experiencing technologies and how the, how the design of technologies are happening and how they're being governed. I think kind of I had an opportunity to see that firsthand while I was at, at in the, in these different spaces, um, and I think that's kind of what led me to eventually you know move out of the more existing structures and kind of create my own structures through the nonprofit, which is Tech Global Institute. And our focus, we're a tech policy nonprofit. We focus on reducing equity and accountability gaps between the global majority and te- emerging technologies and technologies. Uh, and, we foc- and we do this by convening diverse global sub-voices, uh, building evidence-based research around common denominators, and then finally, you know, empowering social organizations and influencing legislations. So that's kind of how we operate. And I think a lot of that has been informed by my own experience of trying to um, make technology work for people and then seeing sort of how do we build good research that actually um, serves that purpose. I mean, this is fascinating because uh, like when I take a look at like the work that the Tech Global Institute is doing, it reminds me of many conversations that I had in the past with like fact checkers all around the world, including from Bangladesh from Myanmar, from, I mean, you name it, like in a lot of countries where the tech companies didn't have necessarily the resources to provide uh, the headquarters with the most, I would say, needed information uh, from the ground. And what you are trying to do right now, if I you know, read this correctly, is to breach this gap between all these conversations around regulation, you know, uh, different you know, uh, policymaking processes, and how they impact the global majority. Right now, we're in the middle of this new trend um, around regulation. I mean, we have the DSA in Europe, we have the Online Safety Act in the UK, the New Zealand, Australia, they all have their regulations taking place. Regulation is obviously necessary, but it comes with the risk of being replicated by bad actors with malicious intentions, right? What is your main source of concern when it comes to how those regulation attempts are being misread or basically manipulated by different governments or policymakers around the world in the name of fighting against misinformation, but actually just censoring free speech? Yeah, uh, tough. I mean, really great question, actually. I think um, fundamentally, uh, I think the risk of regulation is over-regulation, right? And I think being able to navigate that in a very responsible way is quite important. Oftentimes, we try to um, try to see regulation as a solution for not knowing enough or confusion, or uh, you know, or fear, right? And regulation shouldn't be actually doing any of those. Regulations is supposed to um, be sort of that 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 guardrail that actually enables innovation within set parameters. And those parameters are, are to ensure that that you know technologies are working again in service of people. So I think really being able to understand our relationship with regulation is quite important. And 
and what we should expect of regulations as a starting point. So I think that's the first piece. But on the other step, which is kind of what you mentioned, because we have this wave of regulations, wave of sort of governance frameworks happening around the world, I think the other aspect of regulation is to recognize that um, they operate within specific historical and political environments, right? And you can't put a set of rules outside of it. So because you know, each part of the world, there's different kinds of democracies. There is, you know, sort of the ideological democracies, there's hybrid democracies, there are authoritarian regimes. If you put the same set of rules in every single um, of these kinds of democracies, they function very differently and they have very different outcomes, right? And being able to, again, distinguish between sort of not just the purpose of regulation, but also the environment within which they're operating, I think that's another key sort of concern and challenge that we navigate in our work is in, in terms of how do we ensure, one, the rules are, are serving the, the end people, two, that their rights binding, and then three, that they're actually cognizant of does this country or does this democracy have a good legal system? Is there freedom of press? How does the government actually work? Um, you know, um, is there separation of powers? All of these are really necessary ingredients for, for certain regulations to work in certain ways. And so to your point, I think we see a, a, a risk around the fact that when regulations just get replicated from one part of the world to another without those contextual fixes. And in many ways, it's, it's uh, how platforms also do their policies, that there is a one-size-fits-all policy around the world. And there's a reason that you do it. It's cost-effective. There's a resourcing issue as well. But at the same time, I think the question is, is there sufficient flexibility and recognition of, of those cultural, political, legal nuances that then enables us to make sure these rules are not, are not just being interpreted by the letter of the policy, but also by the spirit of what it's trying to do? Similarly, these regulations, rather than copying exact provisions and exact language, are, are we actually understanding the spirit of the regulation? And then replicating the spirit as opposed to the language and the letter of it, right? And I think that kind of cross-pollination by taking away context and taking away why it exists in the first place and within which it exists, I think is a is a huge, huge challenge. And we're quite uh quite worried about how we're seeing sort of global trends evolving in the last couple of years. Right. I mean, there was a study done by Peter Cunliffe Jones, um, the the founder of Africa Check, yeah. um, and he basically studied, uh, I guess, up to like you know twenty different legislative efforts in Africa, and what yeah. he found out was that like you know they were all replicating the, uh, the regulations, models. you know, European models, and the output was not necessarily the same. Yeah. Uh, so it is you know quite a challenge, I guess. Uh, the other side of the coin, I guess, is. Self-regulation, right? Like the platforms are sort of like you know coming together to self-regulate their you know work. And recently in Munich, uh, the tech companies came together. Yeah. I think about like yeah, you know, too many of them. I might be wrong though, but uh, yeah, many of them came together to agree on certain principles to implement um, certain principles in place ahead of these elections in 2024. And that's going to be a challenge because like we are already in the year of elections. Right, we had elections in Pakistan. We had elections, you know, in in in, in Indonesia. We we do have elections in India, the, in the largest democracy in the world. I mean, millions, hundreds of millions of people will go to the voting stations in the next few months. Do you think like they do have a sense of like you know what the problem is, or what the scope and the scale of the problem is, or are they just like you know replicating the same tactics? that they had and still looking at this from a much more like an Western perspective and hoping that everything will work in the global majority as well. 
Yeah, I, I don't think so. I think, um, you know, I mean, again, like whatever intervention you have in place, I think it's contingent upon what you've invested in the past, right? So if you don't really have classifiers that are trained in specific, and not just languages, but also different kinds of harm areas, if you don't have, uh, you know, sort of that historical um, knowledge or documentation around content moderation decisions, at different points of, at different kinds of crisis, different kinds of civic events that then can inform future decision-making. If fundamentally the power structures are very concentrated within the Western, um, like a handful of Western democracies and ideological democracies, then I don't think, you know, whatever intervention you're, you're going to have is fundamentally going to give you those results because, again, it goes back to the point about what is the environment within which it's operating. And it's not the environment just with just an external environment, which is within a country, but also the internal environment you know, within which these rules are being made and these commitments are being made. So I think that's like the first piece. But you know, I, would, I would actually push it a little further in terms of kind of that, that binary idea that the, the opposite of over is self, right? I don't think necessarily that's, that's kind of the two sides of the coin. I think, uh, I think there is sort of um, very heavy-handed, hardcore regulations with, with very punitive measures, there is regula- regulations that, that are more at the system-based, which is not, not very punitive, but actually has to look at more systems-based set of work around it. You know, I think the Online Safety Act was a really good example in the UK for that. I think there's regulations that are a bit more soft in terms of incentivizing actors to do certain mm-hmm. things. And I think there's a whole spectrum before we come into self. And I think we have tried self for many, many years. But unless self, the challenge with self is that it doesn't really have an accountability structure around it besides, I don't know, bad PR, right? right. Uh, so, so I think, you know, I, I, I would encourage communities and governments to really think through the entire spectrum of option before going from extreme regulation to self-regulation, because I don't think self-regulation is necessarily the best alternative. I do think there's other alternatives on the table. Right. I mean, yeah, like, you know, to your point, I think the Online Safety Act has been a great example in terms of like, you know, how they've been trying to do this as, you know, as a industry, um, you know, wide effort. Um, and the DSA to some extent as well uh, goes back to like 2018, 2019, the earliest conversations were happening within the, you know, the space at the time. It takes time to regulate this such a complex and fast moving space. So, yeah, I mean, that's not an easy task. Um, so, you just want to like, you know, go into a bit more like, you know, granular level and uh, refer to your latest uh, article uh, that you have published um, for the, the context. Um, and you call out something very, I think, like, in you know, a specific and usually, like, you know, overlooked, which is like, you know, cheap fakes, right? I mean, it, yeah. it was like, you know, uh, the whole fact-checking, the verification, this whole information integrity, you know, uh, regime, I would call it, like, you know, started but this phenomenon that, like, you know, the misinformation in 2016, like, caused elections, you know, in one way, and then we had this, like, cheap fakes, and then we were, like, you know, trying to get rid of, you know, the uh, the deep fakes, but people were, like, you know, probably overhyped about deep fakes, and they didn't necessarily pay a lot of attention yeah. on the cheap fakes, and that became a big, like, you know, challenge for, you know, those who are trying to keep the information ecosystem safe in the global majority, because, like, they're easy to produce, right? They are very easy to distribute. They 
that that doesn't take a lot of like resources to create a cheap fake. Right. Uh, do you think we are like losing our f- uh, not necessarily focus on, but like are are we overlooking the dangers of cheap fakes? You know, ahead of all these elections happening this year, uh, while everybody's like you know going crazy about like you know how deep fakes is new video generation tools that OpenAI just released, others are you know working on Mind Journey and others. Like, are we just missing some point here? I mean, as an industry around cheap fakes. Absolutely. Um, and I don't think, again, uh, it's, I think it's not, you know, deep fakes and exchange of cheap fakes and cheap is an exchange of deep fakes. I don't think it's binary, but I do think, I, I think, you know, it really boils down to have we really identified all the ways people can be harmed and then all the different ways that harm can be caused. And if you take really that really fundamental basic framework, I don't think, I think the last 10 years has given us lots of documentation of what harm could potentially look like, but that, that documentation hasn't been as consistent or as, as widely um, cited and discussed when it comes to the global majority. And so cheap fakes, in my mind, is just one way of exacerbating those well-established harms. So some of the questions we still haven't quite figured out is, what is a good def- definition on hate speech, right? I think the platforms have their, mm-hmm. their definition. There is some uh, you know, debates and some, you know, definitions within the broader international human rights framework. And so how do you really define a hate speech? You know, what is, uh, what exactly, you know, at what point does a debate on religion really turn into potential attack on minorities? What, what does that sort of, that, that, that sort of tipping point look like, right? Um, uh, you know, what does an attack on a politician look like? And how do we think about power within that? For example, in, in, in our world, we talk a lot about things like uh, we would allow free speech against elected public officials, but then if that's happening to a female, particular rural candidate in, in a small country in Sri Lanka or, or somewhere in the world, then the impact of that is quite different than if something has happened with Donald Trump in, in D.C., right? And so being able to recognize that is quite important as well. So I think fundamentally, uh, being able to really think about harm in, in, in in, in, in these various contexts, being able to document these harms and then being able to find solutions to address these harms, perhaps is the right approach. And so the argument that I made in, in the article was, yes, we are the generative AI conversation has dominated so much of our emotional, intellectual, political uh, capital that in many ways we have kind of forgotten what we're really trying to solve in the first place, which is that you know, we want less harm caused by technologies. And if you're taking some of that broader frame, then cheap fix is quite important because that continues to be one of the more prevalent ways in which harm is caused to the global majority as a result of, like you said, you know, uh, cheap, uh, lower cost of production, low literacy levels, um, and then just fundamentally, you know, how confirmation biases work and how public, public institutions have been eroded in these kinds of markets, right? So in that kind of a fraught environment, it's really hard. It's really easy. And you know from your factoring experiences to put something, a video stitch together or taking away one small context and then just creating an entirely different narrative, which is, which is as harmful, if not more harmful than deep fake. Definitely. And I guess like, you know, one key uh, milestone that was like, you know, the latest uh, oversight board decisions on this particular video on Meta about like you know biden i'm asking this because like i'm really interested in your thoughts on like you know where is the have to keep the balance between freedom of speech and uh 
sort of like, you know, uh, content moderation, right? I mean, fact checkers have been for a very long time, you know, wrongfully accused of being agents of censorship. And I had to, you know, <laughs> deal with that, like you know, in my previous and current roles, which, you know, I sort of fine, but I'm like, you know, interested in understanding, like, you know, what is the... Like, uh, what should be the parameters, like, you know, in making that judgment, right? Uh, where does it, like, you know, the freedom of speech turn into freedom of reach and how platforms should be addressing those, uh, you know, questions is really interesting to me. Um, you have published a submission on oversight boards on uh, decisions on altered video of President Biden. And yeah. you uh, suggest that Meta should remove the content. Uh, can you just like, you know, break it down to me and for our audience, um, yeah. actually, why do you think that particular video as an example, not just specifically, but as an example should have been removed and what does it speak to future like policies that you think like, you know, Meta should be uh, applying ahead of all this, like, you know, uh, high risk events and elections of this year? Yeah. Um, happy to do that. So I think. Fundamentally, I guess our larger recommendation to the oversight board, which I also think was re- was resonated within the board's its own decision, was expanding Meta's manipulated media policy, not uh, to include chief face, but basically the, our recommendation was to say that you shouldn't really make policies based on what technology people are using, but rather what harm is it actually addressing. So actually focusing action based on harm as opposed to focusing action based on technology which is currently how the policy is structured, right? It's very narrowly scoped to deep ways. Um, but then the larger point we kind of made was around this idea of labeling and, and watermarking. And I know, uh, you know, uh, uh, many of my colleagues in the industry also have very, have very similar kinds of concerns around, you know, to what extent labeling does work. Labeling perhaps, you know, if it's a small, tiny sliver at the corner of the screen that said this is an AI-generated image, I don't think somebody, uh, you know, and, and living in a, in a certain kind of fraud democracy is probably going to even read that. It's done predominantly in English. Uh, you know, fundamentally, I don't think that kind of disclosure really has any kind of bearing. We actually did some surveys and research in, in about 19 countries um, um, earlier this last year. We talked about sort of AI labeling and whether that had any bearing on what, how, we were, how we were reacting to a piece of information and what they were seeing. And I would say like over 90% said, they didn't even know there was a label in the first place. They didn't ever, they never even saw the label, and it doesn't really have as much of a bearing because, you know, I they kind of work with their confirmation biases, right? So I think the larger we were trying to make was how do you really balance between sort of, you know, transparency and then just making sure you're actually able to um, navigate through the harms and then being able to address those harms. And so the arguments we made was. We don't think label, labeling works in every single context, and we should really think about labeling as, as maybe as, as a starting point, but not the end point of how you think about dealing with synthetic content and synthetic media and digitally manipulated media. The other point that we made was particularly around sort of the, the security, right? So if you're, for example, using invisible watermark, there's a lot of movements around that. And Amara just made announcements of, uh, last month or earlier this month, um, around sort of, you know, they're going to be using both labeling, like visible labeling, as well as invisible watermarks so that people can study how this content is being created. Invisible watermarks carries metadata, which again, you know, has certain kinds of private information about individuals. If you're, if you're a political dissident and you're using synthetic media to make a point across, then how, if all synthetic media then becomes censored, 
then that also becomes a challenge and that also puts this person in at risk. So it does really boil down to, um, again, what harm you're trying to address, what are the guardrails around defining that harm, and then what are the policy interventions to address that specific harm within those guardrails. I think applying that framework is going to be quite important. Why we wanted the Biden video to be removed particularly was because of a few things. One, I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of it comes from sort of how you set precedent, right? We felt that the Biden video, not removing it, is going to set precedent for uh, for other democracies in other parts of the world where you may have very similar kinds of videos, but maybe that's going to involve a female politician. Maybe that's going to involve a transgender politician, right? And that has a very different impact and very different harm associated to it than perhaps precedent by in the U.S. So I think our larger point was that these kinds of content, which doesn't really have a public interest value, there is no point of keeping it up, you know, within the larger context of free speech, unless and until, uh, you know, that 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 speech is harmless. You know, there isn't a larger political annotation to it, and then and if and even if you choose to keep it up in one context, are we then willing to have the flexibility to take it on another context where there are clear sort of indicators indications of harm? So I think our hope was that the oversight board would be able to set a precedent by having a bit more, I would say, a slightly more stringent requirements on this particular content that would then define how similar content in other jurisdictions could also be treated. Um, all I hear is trade-offs, right? Like, you know, I mean, these are all, all like, you know, questions that I guess like in the platforms or like, you know, all the decision makers have to keep in mind when making a decision. Um, and Sam just like, you know, talked about this on this, you know, episode as well. Like there's this trade-off between security and access when it comes yeah. to providing, you know, yeah. access to tools, to the, you know, the, the knowledge community, because it helps them to proactively, you know, offer interventions against cheap fakes and deep fakes, but it also empowers them, like, you know, so the, the bad actors to um, use uh, the same technology to uh, sort of, like, you know, overcome those, you know, uh, measures, right? I mean, it's basically an arms race, I guess, like, you know, to fair, you know, fair to say that. What is your, like, you know, suggested way out? I mean, I know that's a very ambitious question and it's not fair <laughs> to ask this, but, like, I'm just, like, you know, wondering in your thoughts, I'm just curious about your thoughts on, like, you know, how we as the community at large should be able to offer those like you know nuanced conversations our point of view to make those decisions are ba- you know made based on uh the the you know the domain expertise from the ground i mean cuz you worked on the two different side of the you know business right i mean you work for a tech company as well so you were probably one of the you know the best you know, people to know about like those challenges there. I mean, is there a way out where in which we can like, you know, help those platforms to make those decisions that are still not one size fits all, but more mindful of those trade-offs and the challenges and attach to those decisions? Yeah, I think there is. I think uh, fundamentally, I I think we need to move um, into really understanding what the spirit of these policies are and how, and what, again, uh, what, what you're trying to safeguard and what you're trying to sort of um, address as harm. So I think fundamentally how we define harm is really important, right? Harm is in, in, in the platform where there's a language called offline violence. I mean, to this day, and I'm sure you've heard it so much in your own fact-checking um, experiences, to this day, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> because I think 
Because I think that that very metric is very problematic. It requires, mm. you know, when you when you hear violence, you require something very physical to happen, and it needs to happen offline at a certain scale for it to then matter in order for you to make a decision, right? And I think that yeah. fundamental framing is like deeply problematic, right? So, so I would just really go, and I know throughout this podcast, I talk a lot about the basics, but I really think we haven't quite figured out the basics. And I think if we try to kind of bring solutions as band-aids on top of the basics, I think we kind of keep losing, I guess, the forest in search of the tree. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of where, where I see the challenges. So to, to your point, what is the way out? I think one fundamentally uh, redefining and rethinking what do we even mean by harm? And then seeing harm through the lens of power is really critical. And then basing policies where, where sort of harm and power are taken as a lens in how you interpret these policies and then apply them is also quite critical. Uh, to your point, uh, again, the point around sort of how do we like move away from universality? Because I, I and I understand platforms have to make trade-offs. There's resource constraints, but at the starting point is how do we make sure we're compliant with American case law and those examples? I think that's not a great starting point, right? So maybe perhaps the next step would be how do we move to an international human rights framework and use that as a as a as a as a as a set of guardrails with its and that and that has uh, that has its own limitations, but at least it's a bit. Bit better than sort of you know the uh, the the more um, binary arguments around around free speech and First Amendment. So perhaps uh, using that as a framework and then thinking and policies through that lens, particularly, and then defining it again through those lens could perhaps move us a little bit closer to what true universality would look like and what the solutions may look like. And I think the third piece of that is, um, I guess really like long-term investments into all of this, right? I, like you said, uh, this, these are very complex problems. There's a lot of trade-offs and decisions being made. I think a lot of it is being positioned as trade-offs in many ways. I mean, if you have, uh, if you even look at the 10 years of experience we have with fact-checkers in the world, there's an abundance of knowledge and experiences on where to draw the line and different kinds of situations. So I don't know if it was in your world and I've seen, have, has that ever been done where you actually take all of that collective knowledge and then build evidence around it and then actually say, here's some, here are the five different misinformation policies and how we, should be, how we should be navigating it. And really that kind of investment from the platforms in hearing from communities, learning from lived experiences, and then actually genuinely incorporating that into their, into their interventions. So again, unless that happens, we keep having these top-down approaches for bottom-up problems. And I think fundamentally, there's going to be a disconnect between between the two. Right. Like if that ha- if that doesn't happen, I think we're going to keep seeing a, a, a world where, like you know, uh, American tech companies are being regulated by Europeans, and the the the, the people in the global majority, you know, faces the highest consequences, uh, which yeah. I don't think it's ideal for anyone. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for joining for this conversation. Of course, thank you for having me. This has been a longer episode than the first three ones, but I think it would be helpful to put things in context here. And I really appreciate Sam and Dia to offer me the chance to walk you through how the the new phenomenon that we are living in right now has 
its challenges, but also opportunities to, you know, Sam's point provided by providing access to the practitioners to document the human rights violations and uh, holding the power in the account, but also uh, to Dia's point, um, allowing um, law calls, cheap fakes to um, hurt the integrity of our uh, information ecosystem. So I'm really grateful that I had this chance and I hope you found it helpful. Please um, keep providing me with your feedback and comments uh, that I look forward to uh, making this podcast um, much more um, useful and um, helpful for your journey to understand uh, the challenges and uh, the opportunities in this field. Um, I'm going to be joined by an amazing, another amazing guest next week. Uh, Katie Harbat will be uh, joining me for the show and we'll be talking about this um, upcoming elections and uh, ways in which we as the, the knowledge workers at large are preparing to uh, combat the flags of uh, misinformation. Uh, not just that, but also uh, empowering people uh, to access a healthy information ecosystem protected by free speech and empowered by um, experts um, like herself and others. Thanks so much and I see you the next one.